Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, it's called Vaccine Hesitancy. I'll speak with, I'll speak with Atlanta-based physicians about educating and assuring those considered vaccine hesitant. And also, in just a moment, a conversation with Dr. Stephanie Zaza, president of the American College of Preventive Medicine. And our discussion will focus on the future and lessons learned from this ongoing public health crisis. But first this, today is the first day all American adults are eligible for a COVID-19 vaccination. At a press conference this morning, Andy Slavitt, White House Senior Advisor for the COVID Response Team, said the goal now is to expand access to all Americans. Over 80% of seniors have had at least their first shot, up from 8%. And now 50% of adults in the U.S. have had at least one shot, up from 5%. And we now have one thing on our mind making sure that the other 50% know how easy it is to get a shot. Now, this week here in Atlanta, over at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, well, listen, there's no appointment COVID-19 vaccines that are available for Georgians 16 and older who need their first or second vaccination. Now, patients must wait at least 21 days between doses, and they have to bring their vaccination card showing the date of their first shot. Now, pay attention because this is important. Walk-up vaccinations are available from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. today, Monday, right now, and from 9.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. Tuesday through Thursday and 9.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. on Friday. And we'll have this information on our website. Of course, there's free parking at the stadium and language services are also available. Now, this comes at a time where just 20 percent of Georgians are fully vaccinated and 32 percent have received at least one dose. Still not good enough considering that Georgia is still behind nearly every other state in the country. According to the CDC, Georgia is behind Mostly every state, as I just said, but ahead of Mississippi and Alabama. Meanwhile, the total number of confirmed cases continues to rise nationwide. Now, also at this press conference this morning, the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, said cases are rising in pretty much every state. Yesterday, CDC reported nearly 60,950 cases of COVID-19. Our seven-day average is up to over 67,440 per day. For context, one month ago, our seven-day average of cases was just over 53,000 per day. The seven-day average of hospital admissions is about 5,460. And sadly, the seven-day average of daily deaths are now increasing, with six consecutive days of increases to about 695 deaths per day. Sunday, we again saw almost 700 deaths in a single day. Now, here in Georgia, the total number of confirmed cases since last year, we're right at 868,865. Sadly, 17,214 Georgians have died to this virus, and the total number of hospitalizations is now at 60,466. Now, Georgia apparently is not seeing the spike in COVID numbers that some states are seeing. But coming up in just a moment, I'll be joined by Dr. Stephanie Zaza, president of American College of Preventive Medicine. And we'll talk about lessons learned from this pandemic and also in the future, what this means in terms of public health policy and also a conversation about combating vaccine hesitancy. And we have your emails to ask our guests and we appreciate you all doing so. You still have time. Send me an email, Rose at WABE.org. If you have a question about the vaccine, because perhaps you are part of that vaccine hesitant group. 
You can remain remain anonymous. I don't need your name. All that's just ahead. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As we just told you, and of course everyone's been saying all this weekend, at this time half of all American adults have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. That's the good news, right? And the nationwide rollout of the vaccine has been heralded as a milestone in the pandemic. So now we're looking at maybe 32.5% of U.S. adults that are fully vaccinated. Again, good news for some, right? Well, on today, CDC officials celebrate the fact that all adults are now officially eligible for the vaccination. Today is an important day in the entire scope of the pandemic. Thanks to the scientists who have spent more than 20 years researching and developing the technology that led to these vaccines. To the warehouse workers and truck drivers getting vaccine doses to every corner of the country to the local pharmacies, health centers, medical centers, faith-based organizations, and many more ensuring vaccine access in their communities into the healthcare workers who are putting the shots in arms. Thanks to all of them, it has never been easier to get a shot. Now, that, of course, is White House Senior Advisor for the COVID Response Team, Andy Slavitt, at a press conference earlier today. So this is now, but what will life be after the pandemic, whenever we get through it? And what lessons can be learned moving forward? Because actually, we're still in this public health crisis, and now we want to look to the future. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Dr. Stephanie Zaza. She's the president of the American College of Preventive Medicine, and also we'll tell you a bit more about her background. Dr. Zaza, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Before we get into the future, you know, prior to coming on air, we both were listening to Here and Now, and they had an expert on talking about mask wearing and suggesting that states ease up on outdoor mask wearing and then was wondering if that would help get people more, I don't know about excited, but also prompt people to get the vaccination because then there's less restrictions on them. But here's what I will tell you, because I get emails all the time. Folks like you who are credible experts and the person that was on doing here and now and other experts who give conflicting information. Can you understand how that can be confusing to the public? Because you're like, well, this person's credible. This person's credible. Who do you listen to? Uh, Not asking you to slam that expert, but can you understand folks like, well, wait a minute. I don't have to wear my mask. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's incredibly confusing. And actually early on, uh, we had members of, of our college, the American College of Preventive Medicine, saying, if if it's going to be this confusing, why don't we weigh in? And I'm like, and and join the join the confusion. Like, I think so many voices has actually made it difficult to have a consolidated and coherent message. Um, I think we have to be very careful about not establishing policy via social media. This These are the kinds of things that have to be um, well thought through and make sense. Um, and I, I think that the, the issue that I was hearing was if people are vaccinated, it's really, it should be okay to take your mask off outdoors. The problem is the numbers that you were just quoting, that not enough people yet are vaccinated. So partly it's about a symbol of uh, our confidence in these steps. Partly it's about um, maybe a joining some incentives together, right? If you get vaccinated, you can take your mask off. Um, so I think that, and, and it's hard to um, enforce those kind of things if you move quickly in one direction without having a way to say, you know, have you been vaccinated? Um, here in Colorado, we're still, we've, we still have ski season going on. And my husband sent me some video yesterday from the middle of one of the villages and most people weren't wearing masks. Um, and we ha- it's a county with one of the highest rates of ongoing COVID uh, cases in the in the state. So I do think that we have to t- 
take this information um, and think about who our sources of information are. Is is somebody who's who's talking about this making policy, or are they just stating an opinion? And that's where it can be very confusing to, gonna, to suss that out. I'm going to do something that I rarely do, but I think it's important, and I'm okay with this. What role do we, as credible news outlets, notice that word again, as credible news outlets have in trying to help disseminate the information? We want to get various viewpoints, but could we be better? You think you've been paying attention? I know. Uh, how's, in other words, how are we doing? Could we be better in terms of getting the information? You know, out? I think repeating, like like you've done today, repeating information that's coming from the policy making authorities and making sure that's clear that that is policy. And when that is, um, uh, when somebody is coming on and talking about opinion. And what we heard the, the speaker on here and now say is he he is a staff writer for a magazine. He is not a public health expert. He said, this is my opinion about where mm-hmm. we should be going. I'm reinforcing that this was his opinion that policy could follow that. Um, but he was not making policy. And I think the more we can clarify who gets to say this mm-hmm. is policy versus this is my opinion about where policy should go is is an important distinction. I think also, too, and I feel very comfortable saying this, I think as we educate future journalists, we need to make sure we drive that home as well if we're not doing that. Um, Prior to becoming president of the ACPM, you served for 25 years as a medical officer at the CDC. And I know with your public health background, but did you imagine or you're not surprised that at some point the U.S., not just the U.S., but there will be a global pandemic like this at some point in your lifetime? Did you think that was possible? We've had other global of course. Yeah. yeah, we've had other situations. While I was at CDC, I worked for many months on the 2009 influenza pandemic response. I was also called in to work on other coronavirus responses um, that were much smaller and became contained much more quickly. It was, they, were, they had different infectious disease dynamics, and so those were different diseases to, to control. Um, we had been as an agency and in collaboration with many countries around the world working for years on how to recognize and then respond to a pandemic um, and to a novel infectious agent. They happen all the time. And when a new infectious disease jumps from the environment or from uh, animal populations to humans, there is the risk that you can have a pandemic because everybody is susceptible. And so we had been spending a lot of time and a lot of resources to figure out how to put those global surveillance systems in place and put the right response infrastructure in place. So the knowledge about how to do this is there and emerging. Mm -hmm. It will take an enormous investment to put those systems in place, rehabilitate the ones that um, suffered due to lack of funding over the years. But then we also have to look at our own domestic response when something threatening throughout the world. How quickly do we react? How do we react? Do we have the right personnel and systems in place to do that? Um, Do we have the right policies in place, the right regulatory policies? Mm -hmm. We saw at the very beginning of this, a lot of challenges in the regulation of the testing uh, that caused some problems. And so cleaning all that up, making sure we have the right infrastructure in terms of personnel and resources, and making sure we have the right risk communication skills mm-hmm. that was very um challenging throughout the throughout the entire last year and a half um, and we still see it this lots of voices in the mix lack of clarity about who was making decisions a lack of a cohesive kind of message and we can do better on all those fronts well that being the case then are you in favor of having the federal government lead and have mandates that all states have to adhere by. And I know folks get into local control, and I know we know politics is a big part of this, but, and I know that what may work in Georgia may not necessarily be what you need in Montana, or you saw what was happening in Washington state, even with the measles outbreak, and it may not be necessary in Florida. So should there be a more uniform, federal, federally mandated approach policy that all states have to adhere by? So that you don't have some states doing this, another state doing that, and everyone's and everyone's kind of like doing their own thing. Yeah, I think you know there are still um, the Constitution does allow states to make their own public health decisions. 
the way CDC generally tries to influence the way states operate through a, through a crisis like this is via incentives, funding incentives. So here's the money. This is what we're expecting you to do with that money. Um, and that, that often is way, and it's usually done in pretty deep collaboration with the states mm -hmm. so that there's not this um, imposition of regulation. CDC has very limited regulatory authorities. Um, and so this is almost always done through cooperative kind of agreements that allow the states to receive additional funding in order to do specific things. So it's, it's more cooperative than sort of uh, top-down regulatory. But I think that the setting criteria for when you move from one um, situation to another, mm -hmm. one package of interventions to another could be very helpful in future pandemics to allow states to titrate their response to their local needs and what's acceptable in their communities. Let me ask you this, in all your years with the CDC, what were some of the challenges? And look, we know that different administrations come in, but and, and I don't want to get bogged down in policy, but how do you maneuver through the politics versus the policy versus what is absolutely needed? Now, all the states pretty much accepted the fact that we need to vaccinate the most vulnerable first, being our mm -hmm. older Americans. That was everyone agreed upon that. And then the politics got in place, got in got in the way of all that. How did how did you see maneuvering through all of that? It's frustrating. I can manage as a public health official. Yeah. You know, CDC. um my experience at CDC was that politics always played some kind of role. This was out in the open. Um, and I think that's where um, it was, I think, shocking to so many people, both inside the agency and, and to me as an outside observer now, um, to see how openly the politics were affecting um, what was happening. And so, but politics the truth is that the way we respond to any kind of public health crisis depends entirely on the social mores of the community mm -hmm. that's affected. And in this case, it was the entire country. And when we're so divided on so many things and the language of responding to the pandemic was tied to some of those politically divisive issues, it became impossible to not enter into that. So I imagine that inside the walls of CDC, it was incredibly frustrating. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say that it's not unusual. <laughs> um, so but to see it being played out in public, I think was what was so distressing um, for me to watch and, and to mm -hmm. imagine what that must have felt like for my colleagues that are still there. The voice you hear is Dr. Stephanie Zaja. She's president of the American College of Preventive Medicine. And we're talking about the path lessons learned from the coronavirus pad pandemic, excuse me, and the path forward as more Americans are becoming vaccinated. You know, Dr. Zaja, picking up on what you said, because, you know, sadly, we've lost more than 500,000 lives in all of this. And I think mm -hmm. for folks are saying, but that should have been the focus, which was preventing these deaths. Um, but let's talk about the future. Um, those lessons learned. I've asked so many health sure. officials and I'll ask my next two guests this. And I've, I've asked them this before. We talk about lessons learned. Uh, where do you begin? What's at the top of the list? The top of my list um, as a preventive medicine physician is something we've been talking about for years, and that is health inequities. Um, they play out all the time um, under no crisis situation to people who are already who are already vulnerable in so many ways. They never do better when there's a crisis, right? So this was totally unsurprising to us in the preventive medicine field and very distressing to see so many deaths and so many deaths in, in very specific populations. These issues are tied together in complex ways, race, underlying health, age, obesity, um, chronic diseases, occupational risk, they're they're all part of the same set of complex mm -hmm. risk factors that, that affected parts of our communities so much more than other parts. Um, and quite honestly, in a shameful way that, that we have to look at and we have to be able to, to say this is something that those of us in preventive medicine and, and many people in other medical fields have recognized for a long time. I think that what happened in COVID was what one of my colleagues calls COVID the great magnifier. It actually showed 
so clearly mm-hmm. how these racial disparities, health disparities play out in a crisis in a way that I think the general public just was unaware of. And we can do better and we know how to do better. We just have to take the steps to do it. I think one of the words we used a lot and even through public radio, the program I worked on was it was amplified. All these health Mm -hmm. disparities, all these health inequities. And as you just said, this was nothing new. Uh, But now so now it's all been exposed. And so now moving forward and we just spent a moment ago talking about policy. So we keep but we we've heard that before about policy. How optimistic are you that as we're getting through this and whenever we get to the other side of no longer saying we're in a pandemic, how optimistic are you that we will see some change or some movement toward widening that gap, increasing access to not just health care, but it's what we call quality health care and access for all? Well, I think health care access is one piece of it. Um, for my part, and as a preventive medicine physician, what we try to do is look as far upstream as possible. What are the driving factors that create these situations that have less healthcare access? That's to me, that's an outcome. Having mm-hmm. poor health access, healthcare access is a, is a poor outcome. Um, what happened to create that? Why isn't there access there? Why isn't there food in that community? What's the problem with housing? These are all people who are very vulnerable to a health crisis like COVID when it shows up because they're already vulnerable and they are and they're vulnerable to chronic diseases because they can't take care of their own health Mm -hmm. because of their health, because of their housing situation or their food situation or their working for job situation. And so how do we start to go upstream to affect those quality of life issues that that keep people from being healthy and then and then think about healthcare access and the fact that you know many of us are privileged to be able to stay home to work and 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 can't um, and don't have to go into a grocery store or the food factory you know the meat processing plant or wherever um, because that's that's the job that they are qualified to have. And so that's where they work. But why should that make them more vulnerable? Um, so I think we have to look at all of those issues. Do you have some concerns? Because we've been always asked to to follow the science and, and read the data. But what data will reveal maybe two or three years from now in terms of deaths? I mean, we, we just heard that, you know, the life expectancy for black folks in this country was now reduced by another year, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what concerns do you have that we'll hear about certain communities two two or three years from now about the severity, the, the really severe impact of COVID-19? Yeah. You know, I think there, you know, obviously it's not just deaths, but long-term symptoms and long-term illness for, um, that we have to be watching out for, a very severe effects in some children with uh, a rapid immunologic response. So, you know, it's, I think we have to look at the entire constellation of risk um, I think we're going to see a, a long tail on this um, in terms of both infections, severe illness, long-term illness, and deaths. Um, but we're also, we have to pay attention to the fact that people stopped going to the doctor for other things. So other conditions are going to be diagnosed late, um, and that may have terrible consequences for people's health. Um, so we're going to have to really watch all of these data and respond quickly and effectively to what's changing and how those situations are changing as we as we see what happens. It's one thing that's been constant throughout the last 20 some months is every every day is something new and different. <laughs> so the true. science is changing, the, yeah. the information about that is changing, the interpretations are changing. And so we have got to become comfortable with this rapidly evolving kind of situation. And as we wrap up, speaking of comfortable, what is a what is that comfortable number for you? I talked about herd immunity last week on the program and someone sent me an email and said, I keep hearing that term and Rose Scott, I'm still confused. They want to know what is an acceptable number. And I heard Dr. Fauci earlier on NPR say, don't get caught up in numbers. But for regular folks like me who <laughs> are not scientists and don't understand any of this, we just want folks to be better. What is an acceptable number through your lens in terms of when we can say we've reached herd immunity and that we've 
like Israel, I guess, because a lot of folks are using yeah. Israel as the herd model. Im- yeah, nation. I don't think you can measure herd immunity by how many people have been vaccinated, but by how many cases you're still seeing. So I think that if when we start to see cases dropping rapidly, then we can say, and we know that we have relatively high vaccination rates, then we can say we've reached herd immunity. But I would watch cases. I would watch diagnosed, laboratory diagnosed, confirmed cases um, as my measure of herd immunity rather than the number of people vaccinated. They match, I mean, they should go, they should go together. Um, they should track, um, but I, I'm with Dr. Fauci on this. I don't think we put a hard and fast number on the number of vaccinations. I think what we wanna do is watch vaccination rates go up, new cases and hospitalizations go down, 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 and when it drops, to something where you can no longer sustain community transmission, then we've reached herd immunity. Can we at least reach it by October so we can go to a big old <laughs> fashion Halloween party like we're used to going to? Wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Stephanie Zaja, president of the American College of Preventive Medicine. Dr. Zaja, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Great start to a great day of conversations here on Closer Look. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. As you heard today, everyone 16 years of age and up is now eligible for a COVID-19 vaccination right here in the U.S. Yes, it's a long-awaited day for the Biden administration and public health officials. And again, here's CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky from last week. If you have not been vaccinated, I want to encourage you to do so with one of the available vaccines as soon as you can. Widespread vaccination is the only way we will ultimately move past this pandemic. And I feel bad because I'm about to hit y'all with some more numbers after just talking to Dr. Zhaja. But according to the CDC, the U.S. has reached a positive vaccination milestone. Nearly 130 million folks, 18 or older, have received at least one dose of a vaccine. That's half of the nation's adults. And nearly 84 million adults have been fully vaccinated. That's about 32 percent of the U.S. total population. But what about getting shots in the arms of the other percentage? Now, recently on NPR's Morning Edition, there was a feature on vaccination sites between two sites in different regions, L.A. and Florida. The segment included this from a young man named Tony in Tampa. I'm afraid to put something in my body that I'm not 100 percent sure of. And I'm just not sure of the vaccine at this time. Not saying it works. It does not work. I think I need to do more research for myself so I'll be able to make my own educated decision. Uh, Tony certainly is not alone in the way that he feels. And that's a big part of our next conversation. So let's welcome to the program Dr. Lily Emmergluck, Morehouse School of Medicine site principal investigator for the COVID-19 Prevention Network, plus a primary care physician and infectious disease specialist and a population health service researcher at the Morehouse School of Medicine since 2005. And also I'm joined by Dr. Deval Desai, Director of Hospital Medicine at Emory St. Joseph Hospital, as well as an internal medicine and pediatric specialist. And we'll read some of your emails regarding vaccine hesitancy. And as we know they are experts, we ask that you always also consult with your primary care physician. So let's begin here. Dr. Desai, let me stay with you because along with millions of other healthcare workers, y'all have been on the front lines battling this daily virus. How do you put into words where we are right now as a nation with these vaccines that are available? Hi, Rose. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here with you this afternoon. So I feel overall positive right now. I feel reassured with our vaccination rate that we have going on. We have made monumental progress over the last several weeks. And with now vaccines being expanded to the general adult population, we are going to continue to see that. And as a healthcare worker, as a healthcare provider, I think it's important that myself and my colleagues take every opportunity to talk to patients about the COVID vaccine, especially those that remain hesitant. Well, Dr. McGluck, let me ask you, uh, where you, can you put into words right now where we are as a nation with the, these available vaccines? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to be on your show. Um, it's always a pleasure. And I concur with what Dr. Desai said, um, but I do think we can keep moving forward and do better. Um, I am also hopeful uh, given where we are. And as a pediatrician, I'm also thinking about the pediatric population and how soon we can get them also 
in the mix of being classified as vaccinated. Um, but yes, I, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I again feel like uh, we, we want to balance that hope with making sure we are still doing the efforts to contain uh, the spread of uh, the uh, novel coronavirus, especially given the variants and the mm -hmm. easier transmissibility of these variants in our community. So I, I think that's a balanced approach to make sure that we are guarded with our, uh, our mitigation strategies, we're guarded with what we take as, as safe to take our masks off. I, I think we're not quite there. Um, so I wanna be cautionary on that piece. Dr. McGluck, I saw a headline that pretty much said that despite now that the nation's adults, at least half, have received at least one vaccine dose, the headline said, quote, now an uphill battle starts to get more shots into arms, close quote. How much truth is in that headline? This is going to be an up, uphill battle. Yes, I also agree with that statement because, you know, all the people who are like waiting and wanting to get vaccinated are able to. Uh and thankfully, like the priority groups, uh, many of the priority groups have been uh, offered the opportunity to get vaccinated. Now um, are the folks who are maybe less than enthused to get vaccinated. Uh, so I think it's about how to listen to what their concerns are that have been kind of not buried, but it's not been the forefront um, because we were just in general, uh, the distribution wasn't such that we could open it up to all uh, of our population, adult population. So I think we need to step back and think about who are these folks, why are they hesitant, and address them concern by concern uh, through community engagement. And I, I think that's one thing that Morehouse School of Medicine, that we've really started from the very get-go, mm -hmm. try to, to do this. I agree with that. I, I mean, maybe I'm not supposed to, but you all were so eager to come on the program and, and you provided information. So folks can't say that. Y'all didn't have the information because you did. So I just want to be fair about that. Uh, Dr. Sai and Dr. McGluck, I want to replay that clip we played earlier from the NPR uh, Morning Edition last week. It was from a young man named Tony in Tampa. I'm afraid to put something in my body that I'm not 100% sure of. And I'm just not sure of the vaccine at this time. I'm not saying it works. It does not work. I think I need to do more research for myself so I'll be able to make my own educated decision. Dr. Desai, let me ask you this, because you I know it's not lost on you what you just heard Tony talk about, but he says he wants to do his own research. Where should Tony begin? Well, I think first and foremost, he should partner with his primary health care provider or another healthcare worker physician. Um, I think it's our job to navigate patients like Tony, citizens like Tony who are on the fence. Let's ask Tony, why is he scared about putting something in his arm? Is he scared he's going to have anaphylaxis? Is he scared about the side effects? Is mm -hmm. he scared about what's in the vaccine? We really have the power to help navigate and find those answers. And I honestly have had several patients just like Tony. They're admitted for non-COVID reasons, but I'm taking intentionally every opportunity possible to talk about the vaccine. And I'm finding a wide variety of reasons when I ask, well, why don't you want to get it? And some people to say, well, it's the side effects. I openly like to talk about the side effects. They are not easy, but we need to face them. That's an investment we're making to get the return on investment for the immunity. Um, and there are some more complex issues that come up too, but we as healthcare providers can really take that moment to engage and navigate patients and citizens just like Tony. Dr. McGluck, what do you want to add? How do you reach folks like Tony? I, I think it is to help uh, folks like Tony identify that trusted source. Uh, sometimes the primary care physician, although we would like to think of ourselves as being always available, um, I think that sometimes um, uh, for some folks, it's not necessarily accessible. And so how do we as primary care physicians and healthcare in general uh, improve the communication to those trusted sources, to those churches, to those community organizations uh, where people can go and get information? I think the other piece that he mentioned uh, very, very nicely was make his own decision. Mm -hmm. So what does he need to make his own decision? You know, um, I know that we all are all about like evidence-based medicine and using the science to drive us, but how do we uh, get that science information out there so that Tony can feel like he's empowered to make his own decision? And that, that's the question I ask myself uh, a lot. 
Last week, the partnership between the Georgia Department of Public Health and the Georgia Municipal Association launched a statewide campaign called It's Worth a Shot. Now, here's the mayor of Union City, Vince Williams, talking about the historical distrust of science and vaccines. But by his viewpoint, this should be different. I see how these horrible incidents, along with the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on communities of color over the past year, can bring you little hope. But today's vaccine process is safe and effective. I'm hearing a lot of uh, uh, conversation around, well, it's too fast. We're in 2021, people. Medicine has elevated to uh, an amazing pace. It doesn't take years and years to come up with something that is effective. I, I want you to know you can trust this process. I, along with my family, joined other 70 million Americans who trusted in the vaccine process and already have received, myself as I shared earlier, both vaccines. Now, Dr. Desai, along with folks like you and Dr. Emmer Gluck, we folks say, well, I expect y'all to tell me, tell us the importance of this vaccine. Now we're asking local leaders to get involved, too. Um, do you think this is an effective campaign? I think certainly it's effective. I commend Mayor Williams in Union City. I'm a big fan of the idea that health, really good health starts in the community. Uh, that's where a lot of trust happens. That's where you have your friends, you have fellow citizens. So local leadership can really have that positive influence. And for Mayor Williams to put himself out there, advocate for the vaccine, openly share his story with, I think that's key. And that's one step closer to vac vaccination and immunity for that community. Dr. McGluck, something like this can really help to get the message out? Absolutely. You know, um, I mean, I was fortunate to be one of the first folks who got vaccinated. Uh, I, uh, I got the Pfizer vaccine, both doses. But, you know, now, you know, recently we are started this um, uh, college age study targeting um, 18 to 26 year olds who we think, you know, from a behavioral standpoint, they're less likely to necessarily mask. Um, but we engaged in uh students from the four HBCUs, so Morehouse College, Spelman, Clark Atlanta, and also Morehouse School of Medicine to develop a youth advisory board so that we can say, hey, what is what, what are people in your age group, uh, in your institution, what do they feel are their concerns? And again, this is another way to reach out to the community by listening to the community. And that's what, you know, I, I think is just so key to getting this message out. The voice you hear is Dr. Lily Emmergluck. She's Morehouse School of Medicine site principal investigator for the COVID-19 Prevention Network. I'm also joined by Dr. Deval Desai, director of hospital medicine at Emory St. Joseph's Hospital. I want to take some time now because we did ask listeners to, and they could remain anonymous, to send me their questions or concerns. And again, we know that you all are the experts, but we ask that folks always consult with their primary care physician. Here's one from a closer look listener, KP, who says, could someone break it down while healthy people who get the vaccine develop better immunity than those who are immunocompromised and why it's important for the healthier to get vaccinated in order to protect the more vulnerable? It's a good question. Who wants to take that? Anybody? I can't answer it because I don't take know. take a step at that. <laughs> Go ahead, Dr. Omega. So if you have a healthy if you have a healthy immune response, you have all of the tools you need to mount the protection uh, that your body needs so that a, a germ like the COVID-19 uh, germ can't get beyond just getting you exposed. Mm -hmm. If your immune system isn't working, uh, so it's like weakened for whatever reason, then um, getting exposed to that germ, you're less likely to get your defenses out there. So for all of us who have healthy immune systems, to protect the people who don't have healthy immune systems or have uh, uh, issues, not just necessarily their immune system, but medical conditions, mm -hmm. it is our responsibility to protect them by getting vaccinated so that we don't raise the level of the virus circulating in our communities, especially with some of the variants which are more highly transmissible. It is our job to protect those who cannot protect themselves. Here's a question. Someone says, I'm hesitant to get the COVID vaccine due to the small amount of information we know about its effect on pregnant women. I'm not pregnant, but I'll be trying to have a baby in the next two years. I'm very hesitant with anything I put into my body due to the alarming rates of infertility among women in their late 20s, early 30s. 
Could you ask one of the physicians about their thoughts surrounding the limited trials that have been done on pregnant women or women trying to get pregnant? Anyone, uh, Dr. McCoy, I know you are heavily involved in that. Is that something? I can, you, or Dr. Desai? Go ahead. Go ahead, Dr. Emmerglick. So first of all, let me just emphasize again, none of these uh, COVID vaccines that have been FDA approved for emergency use authorization uh, are injecting any live uh, COVID, vac- uh, COVID virus in us, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, you've heard, I mean, many of the listeners may have heard that the technology used actually isn't like it was all of a sudden developed during this pandemic. Actually, the technology used had been has been around for some time. It's just that the novel coronavirus itself is new. So it's taking a piece of this novel coronavirus, a piece, not anything live, uh, and letting our immune system see it so that if we see the real deal, we'll know what to do. If you think about pregnancy and what's happening during the pregnancy, number one, there isn't any uh, live virus being injected into uh, uh, a person who's pregnant. And from so from an immunologic standpoint, what's happening is that your body's developing an antibody response to prevent infection. As you go further and further along in your pregnancy, your immune system is gonna be a little bit less robust as somebody who isn't pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so you want to have, you know, added protection so that you don't contract COVID-19. I, I, you know, um, one of our our program manager on our vaccine trial unit, she actually was pregnant during, um, uh, uh, during our trial uh, and she delivered her baby, but she was, she got her Pfizer dose uh, and she was so excited the day that she finished her second dose. But I'm just saying that, you know, that's a, a, obviously an anecdotal story I'm sharing, but I'm mm-hmm. just saying to you that to me, the pregnancy issue uh, uh, to get the vaccine shouldn't uh, prevent people from getting it because the disease mm-hmm. from getting COVID-19, if you're pregnant, can be really serious. And Dr. Desai, you are... If I pe- may yeah. add one more Yeah, point. absolutely. Yeah, so um, personal anecdote. Thank you, Rose, um, and thanks, Dr. Emmergluck. So um, I will share that my wife, we had our second child last year, right around the time the pandemic hit, and that's when Rose and you and I chatted last. But, mm-hmm. you know, we, uh, she, there was also concern with getting the vaccine while nursing or breastfeeding. And my wife did make the choice to get vaccinated while she was still nursing um, with that. And we feel really validated, really firm and positive with that because we're seeing time and time again that the evidence is showing that antibodies are being passed to the baby. I'll also share a quick anecdote. I have a colleague who is on the front lines with me fighting, expecting her first child. And she also did her research and ultimately did get vaccinated um, for COVID-19. As Dr. Emmerglick said, getting the disease is far worse than getting vaccinated at that point. The antibody response is what we need. Dr. Desai, I want to stay with you for a moment because here's a question. Someone says, uh, what is the normal life cycle of a vaccine and how do scientists know when a booster is needed? Now, that may be a long question, but... Uh... What's the normal life cycle of yeah. a vaccine? Well, uh, you know, it's um, so if we look at the flu vaccine, the flu vaccine is a prime example how we have to take it yearly. The flu vac- the flu virus itself continues to evolve um, and the vaccine has to be changed and adapted to what the virus is really presenting. So similarly, we may be in a similar situation with COVID. It is still we are in the first part of this where we're still seeing the initial groups of people that were vaccinated and how long their antibody response is there. Mm-hmm. Um, as Pfizer put out last week, that it's likely that a booster shot would be needed in that one year time frame. The exact time frame is not 100 percent set in stone, but that's the reality. And that's not a surprising uh, finding to be expected at this point. Uh, here's a question. Uh, very important. How safe is it really for kids? I guess kids would mean 16 and under, I'm assuming, because now that anyone over the age of 16. Dr. McGluck, you want to tackle that one? Yeah, so we are already underway with um, phase, what we call phase three uh, vaccine trials for uh, kids at actually, you know, some going down to six months and up. So, you know, the normal progression for vaccine trials is you start with healthy adults and then you move to adults that have maybe risk factors that you worry about. And then we start to de-escalate uh, down to different age groups. We start with the ones that are teenagers and then we move to the younger group and younger and younger. And so that's what's happening across um, for the currently FDA EUA approved vaccines. Um, and 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 I think Dr. Fauci said this weekend that uh, the hope is that maybe by June ish um, that we would have um, vaccinated uh, or the opportunity to vaccinate um, our, our pediatric population. 
Hmm. Here's a question from a listener who says, can I just wait a few more months or do I have to get vaccinated? I don't know what I, that's just a question. I think I'm time reading. is of the time is of the essence and we should act now. Um, I am on the hospital in the front lines with COVID is not zero. We are still seeing new cases with disease severity that is out there. We have the vaccine. If it's available to you, now is the time to educate yourself and make an informed decision to get it. Well, and then on that note, because I want to be fair, because a listener just emailed me and said, look, hi, Rose, trust is the main factor. Aside from Tuskegee, there were instances in recent history of forced sterilization and experimentation of prisoners that need to be acknowledged and addressed. Advertising campaigns aren't effective. What do y'all make of that? I mean, again, it, it is, a, look, you can't deny that what history, what has happened. But, and Mayor Williams says, look, it's 2021. We've got to move beyond that. You all are, are physicians of color. How do, and it may not necessarily just be folks of color, because the rural population, which here in Georgia is predominantly white, mm-hmm. that's what we are told. This vaccine has in that community. So how do you how do you reach that? How do you reach that population? Let me just uh, explain a little bit. With these clinical trials, it's been so important that we include minority populations. And I think I what I try to emphasize to all the people who generously volunteer to participate, and we had about 60% African-Americans, about 6% um, Latinx community that participated in our trial recently that completed phase three. It's the informed consent, first of all, they have to understand what's involved with volunteering for a, a vaccine trial and knowing and asking questions. I think that for the general public to say, what does it mean to then vaccinate with a vaccine that has been given FDA approval for emergency use authorization? Um, they have to understand that that vaccine has gone through the processing of a clinical research spectrum evaluating safety all along the way uh, and also the effect, the efficacy. And it's only at that point uh, that it's been offered in this setting of being in a pandemic that uh, the general population can get it. So again, it's trusted source. What questions do you have that makes you wary that you are not being offered the best and safest uh, that we are offering for anybody? Mm-hmm. I think that that's what it comes down to. Uh, and also continuing having that trusted source after you get vaccinated, uh, knowing who do you ask those questions to. Well, let me ask you all both this, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I've got a couple emails about this. Everyone doesn't have a primary care physician. Some folks yeah. don't go to a doctor until they break an arm playing basketball, pick up basketball. Some folks don't have that. So how do you, you know, you, you're asking, you know, when we heard Tony and we talked about Tony needs to consult his primary care physician. Tony may not have a primary yeah. care physician. Dr. Desai, you've probably had patients who did not have insurance. Right, right. So for me in the hospital, you know, whether a patient's coming in for a broken bone or for something else, I'm working on being intentional about taking every opportunity to talk to every patient about the COVID vaccine. You raise a very good point about healthcare access and what if you don't have a primary care physician? What if you're younger, you don't really go to the doctor ever? In that sense, I think we really need to take charge of our community organizations, whether it's churches, schools, going out in the community and educating on the local level. I think that trust will start individually in a small environment, small group fashion. I also think there's power in social media. There's tons of uh, town halls going on with different organizations. And how do we continue to use that platform in this day and age to reach you know, other po- the general population? And that's something that we as a community as a whole have to take responsibility for. Dr. McGluck, you all, of all the folks over at Morehouse School of Medicine, know the importance of the community engagement and being a part of that. You all have been over there for so many years now. Are you all still getting a lot of folks with questions saying, you know, I, I just don't trust the process? Or what can you all do to assure me? So we, we have an 800 number that we make available for any questions regarding COVID, whether it's COVID testing, whether it's COVID vaccination. Um, we also have a community advisory board. So these are folks that are from our community um, that help us to uh, figure out what, what areas uh, that we need to spend more attention to try to get more engaged uh, with that particular uh, community or neighborhood. Uh, we're part of Georgia Seal, which is a um, 
a statewide initiative that was uh, brought forward from NIH to work with other statewide and uh, private and also nonprofit organizations, including churches across the state. So we form a network so that, you know, if I have a question and it impacts a rural community, they would have a way to access that information. I mean, part of the issue with the inequities about COVID-19 rests on these social determinants, one of which is access to health care. Mm-hmm. But you could put in housing, you could put transportation, all of those issues impact whose information source and how easy can people get to it to figure out what's the best uh, uh, health care measures to take for themselves. Dr. Sai, I'll give you the last word in terms of, you know, reaching folks, vaccine hesitancy, and then also folks saying, look, sometimes... You know, that could be the blame, but it's also about access. In the end, as someone just wrote to me, are y'all going to say, I guess y'all, it wasn't that folks didn't get it, is that they didn't have access. And then therein lies the problem. So I think access is getting better. So first and foremost, no one should ever have to pay for a COVID vaccine. They should be free. We know Fulton County, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, you know, is doing a great job now. They're having walk-in appointments today between 2 and 10. Those types of initiatives, that is access. And how do we keep have, making sure we have those opportunities on a local level, in a systems level, city level? Um, and that's really going to be how we get past this, especially in this latter percentage that we're hoping to get vaccinated. And that's, that's going to be a challenge. But I think it's one that we're all acknowledging is there. And we'll have to partner together um, to keep moving forward with that. Dr. Duvall Desai, Director of Hospital Medicine at Emory St. Joseph's Hospital, as well as an internal medicine and pediatric specialist. I was also joined again by Dr. Lily Immergluck, who's who's a primary care care physician, get it out, and an infectious disease specialist and a population health service researcher at the Morehouse School of Medicine since 2005. And also Morehouse School of Medicine site principal investigator for the COVID-19 Prevention Network. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Our listeners sent in some good questions, I believe. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., And also remember, we will have more conversations like this. These are conversations that you all wanted from the community, so we appreciate your input. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.